So today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. <laughs> Who am I? Oh, my name is Grace. <laughs> Hi. Um, so Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself tools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for doing all my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Thanks, Grace. Um, I want to take advantage of the opportunity I have with this microphone before I start my sermon, just to tell you guys how pumped I am for the Veritas Forum. Raise your hand if you are also feeling that way. I know a lot of you have even worked on like proxy stations and stuff throughout this past week. Raise your hand if you've been involved in some way. Yeah, thanks so much for all of your guys' time and efforts. Um, something I've just enjoyed about the prep for this event the most is getting together with the leaders of other campus ministries. It's just been so rewarding to spend a lot of time together and talk about um, our common desire to see, see faith um, be talked about on campus by people who may not normally have conversations. And I would just love to see you guys at the IU Auditorium Tuesday night at 8. And feel free to bring friends. Two professors, one who's a believer and one who's an agnostic, having a conversation on is faith in God reasonable, um, just at an extremely high level. They're going to address questions from the audience, and afterwards there will be refreshments and opportunities to have more discussions. So we would just love to see you there and bring a friend. We want to pack this place out. It's going to be pretty cool. Um, so I don't know if any of you ever pay attention, but we have sermon titles um, and 90% of the time, we only have them because you have to have a sermon title um, to list in like the bulletin or whatever. But this week's actually matters. Um, does anybody even remember what my sermon title is this week? Any thoughts? My sermon? Yes. Who was it? Can you say it, Mikhail? Live in the dream. Who the live in the dream out there? Um, this title actually matters. Because I want to talk about this as an introduction to the passage that Grace just read for us. So this phrase, live in the dream, it really didn't emerge until our culture became really cynical about life in general. Isn't that kind of funny? How many times have you heard anyone sincerely say, I am living the dream? <laughs> hey, how, how you doing? I am living the dream. You would just be, I would want to punch that person in the face. I would just, like, just chill out, you know? Okay, that was too far. I'm sorry. I would want to punch him in the face. But I feel like that phrase is something that um, we use 
just to express um, this fact that life may not quite be what we want it to be, but you know, we're giving it our best. We're giving it our darndest, right? Um, and here's the thing. Half of us, we don't even really know what living the dream actually looks like, do we? Um, so many times, these things that we feel like we need in our lives in order to live the dream um, are totally subjective. We wouldn't even be sure what the dream was if we were living it. Um, we just have this feeling that things could be better than the way they are. Uh, I don't know if any of you can echo that sentiment that I've certainly felt myself. But here's what I want to ask you. What if you had all the resources in the world at your disposal in your quest to live the dream, uh, lacking absolutely nothing that you need to acquire what you've always wanted? How would it work out? Uh, I hate to be a downer, but it would probably work out similarly to the passage we just read. Uh, what we just read in Ecclesiastes 2 is King Solomon, one of the most powerful and wealthy and respected and influential kings in the history of Israel. This is his no-holds-barred attempt to live the dream. Uh, so before we talk about the passage, I want to share just a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not one that we read all that often in the church. Um, but it is certainly one of my favorites. I feel like it is a rich book that speaks with great wisdom and insight about life. Uh, so this book is commonly associated with King Solomon of Israel. And you may remember he's actually the son of King David. And he asked God for wisdom, and God divinely gifted him with wisdom. And Solomon was renowned for it. He wrote the majority of the book of Proverbs that we've been studying throughout the semester. But Solomon was still a man. Uh, he had his struggles. He made plenty of mistakes, and some of these mistakes just had a grave impact on the nation of Israel. Uh, but this book, Ecclesiastes, really aims to give us a big picture look at life itself and existence from these lessons that Solomon learned. And a lot of it describes what happens when people pursue wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. Uh, something we talked about earlier in the semester, uh, a heart attitude. and an attitude that's backed up by actions that recognizes that God is over all things. Um, so a life lived that doesn't acknowledge the fear of the Lord uh, leads to folly, and Solomon talks about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, something that's really interesting is this book was written 3,000 years ago almost, in an entirely different time, place, uh, culture from where we live today, but the issues he addresses are absolutely universal and timeless. I love this quote by a professor uh, from Wheaton College. He's an author named Leland Reichen. He says, Ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the Bible. That's a big claim. He says, Ecclesiastes is a satiric attack on the acquisitive, hedonist, and materialistic society. It exposes the mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. And that's pretty much what we just read about, right? So uh, if you do have your Bibles, can you open those up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 while I try and use all my strength to get this just a little bit higher? Uh, so let's begin right at the beginning of verse uh, 1 in chapter 2. Solomon's experiment to find contentment and meaning in life. And so this begins with his pursuit of pleasure. He says, I tested myself and sought pleasure that I might enjoy myself. Solomon looked to pleasure, to humor, to wine. Um, all good things in their right place, in my opinion. Um, but he knew all along that these things would never satisfy. 
Next, we read about how he looked at possessions. It says he built homes. He built gardens, parks, planted fruit trees in his parks, built pools to water the trees. Can you imagine that? What a life. Uh, what am I going to do today, he must have thought. Maybe I'll go to my house by the sea or my palace in the city. Or maybe I should just chill at the park I built for myself. <laughs> Eat some oranges off my trees, you know? This guy, he's living the dream. Uh, next we read that Solomon had slaves at his disposal to accomplish whatever tasks he needed done. He never had to pump up his own bike tires. Uh, he had his own singers, and male and female singers. And I imagine these guys were probably legit. Uh, you know, he's not going to have some bad singers who can't carry a tune under his, what should I say, under his uh, care for his entertainers. He's got some friends coming over. Hey, let me summon Adam Levine to come serenade us after dinner. <laughs> this guy had the good life. Um, next we read that Solomon had many concubines. And this wasn't an okay thing as a follower of God, not at all. But it was a norm for kings in, ancient, in the ancient Near East. And Solomon totally failed in that regard. Let me tell you, Solomon probably didn't have his concubines over to watch a movie and call it a night. Um, Solomon's wealth and possessions were exorbitant. He had greater flocks and herds than any who'd come before him in the entire city of Jerusalem, we read. And that was a real sign of wealth in those days. The amount of silver and gold and treasures that he kept was renowned by all people throughout the region. And what actually brought about Israel's demise was Solomon bringing in the king of Assyria and showing him the royal treasures. He was so proud. What a foolish decision. But he had all of this wealth. He was a man of status, the son of King David. Um, but he was even looked at as having surpassed the rule of his father. And so Solomon summarizes his experiment here to find contentment and meaning by saying, In whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my, ha my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So, when we look at this guy's life from the outside, it just appears that he has it all, doesn't it? But what's the truth? If you have your Bible open, let's read verse 11. He says, I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So when we think about this verse, we have to be honest and acknowledge that um, all of us, we don't have all the resources in the world at our disposal in our pursuit of the lives that we want. At least we don't yet. Uh, maybe the next Mark Cuban is in this room. Um, but like Solomon, we sure can relate to this pursuit, can't we? I know I can. Uh, have you ever felt like, if I just had a little more, then I can be content? Maybe, if I could have this or that experience, then I'll really have lived. If I can be at this financial level, then I'll be secure, and then I can rest and have peace. When I have the right job, or at least I know I'm on the right career path, then I'll know that what I'm doing really matters. Uh, maybe when I perform at this level in school, or sports, um, or my art, or my music, then I'll have some recognition, and then I can be satisfied. Most of us absolutely wear ourselves out in pursuit of these things, don't we? 
I mean, is it even possible to attain some of the things that we seek? Our standards can be so arbitrary, non-defined, based on our own subjective opinions. We're never satisfied. Enough is never enough. And even when we achieve our goals, we just set the bar higher so that we can never get there. Um, if we just had a little bit more, then we'd be content, right? Uh, here's some key information from King Solomon. Uh, this man whose pursuits actually did all materialize to the highest level. All of his ducks were in a row, so everyone thought. Everything was never enough. All was vanity and a chasing after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. No amount of pleasure, laughter, possessions, wealth, wine, sex, status, significance. None of these things satisfied him. And if you get on Google News, um, you will read many stories of this sad reality. Uh, the rare people in this life who appear to come closest to living the dream um, are often the ones who experience the worst discontent, um, even worse than those of us who are perpetually chasing it. Uh, look at the messes some of the most successful musicians and actors and athletes have made in their lives. There are just countless stories of this. Someone may appear to have it all, but when they look to self or for the material for ultimate meaning, they always come up short. Um, they experience great discontent. And so, um, apart from fear of the Lord, Solomon's writings in Ecclesiastes sound absolutely depressing, don't they? Uh, this man simply ran out of patience for the vanity of this pursuit in creating meaning and contentment for ourselves, and he called it like it was. I love the way he sums this up in the beginning of Ecclesiastes. This is chapter 1, starting in verse 2. He says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And then he goes on to say later in that chapter, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon learned that the pleasures, the pleasures of this world may temporarily relieve a person's boredom, or allow them to experience some momentary happiness, or distract them from pain. But what they provide isn't permanent. It isn't ultimate. He learned that wealth and possessions can certainly provide a person with some comfort in life, but they will never fully satisfy or comfort. They won't hold up in eternity. They won't fulfill our deepest needs. Uh, he learned that feelings of personal significance and success never give the meaning and worth that he hoped they would. And you know what? Is this, is this all because Solomon is just really a depressing guy? Um, maybe he just wanted too much out of life. I mean, like, lower your standards a little bit, Solomon. Don't think so hard. Just be content. Um, no. I think Solomon felt this way because created things are never meant to give human beings ultimate meaning. Not pleasure, not possessions, not, accomplish, not accomplishments, not ourselves. Not even other people. Um, even good things. When we take good things and make them these ultimate things in our lives, we set up idols for ourselves, these false gods that lead us astray and never satisfy. So what does satisfy? 
Solomon shares at the end of chapter 2 in verse 25. He says this, Apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one, for to the one who pleases God, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So what he's expressing is that people find true meaning when they are living in a relationship with God. And like Solomon, we can create some real messes for ourselves and experience deep discontent uh, when we fail to recognize this reality. We're not the center of the world. I probably need to remind myself of that more often. Uh, we are not meant to be self-focused and self-sufficient. God has to be at the center. We find real and lasting meaning and contentment when our eyes are off of ourselves and fixed on God. He is the thing of greatest worth, and Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13. I love these analogies he provides. He says in verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again in verse 45 he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold, went and sold all that he had and bought it. There is nothing of greater worth, value, or pursuit than living in relationship with the living God. And so... Let me challenge all of us. Um, I'm definitely including myself in this. Here's the challenge. Are we living our lives in light of this reality? Is our relationship with God maybe contained to our spiritual lives, uh, this separate dimension? Um, or is our life um, founded in faith in God and recognizing His Lordship over all that we do and all that we pursue? And so maybe one way to recognize your answer to this question is through another question. So my question is this, how would you answer this? What do I need to be content, to feel significant, to experience real meaning and real satisfaction? How would you answer that question? This passage teaches that if the answer is not God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, then we're striving after the wind. Let's be wise and take Solomon's experiment as a warning rather than having to learn this lesson for ourselves. Let's look for life where it can actually be found. And so maybe you find yourself in a place right now where you're on the downside of this experiment, feeling overwhelmed with discontent. Um, God can use those feelings to wake you up to some facts about the way you've been living and the things in your heart that you've been desiring the most can be incredibly painful, um, but the times God has done that in my life um, have been incredibly fruitful, and I'm thankful that he's done it. Um, maybe there's a part of you that's saying, I sure would like to desire God and pursue him with more of my heart, but there are things that are competing for my affection. It's just not that easy. Um, I would encourage you with this. Focus your eyes not so much on what you can do to love God more, but on how much God loved you first. Um, before you were even born, before you even considered loving Him, um, and know that He loves you with a bigger love than you'll ever be able to reciprocate. Um, John chapter 4, verses 14 through 19 says it this way, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, 
and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in Him, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Um, what a powerful passage about life as followers of God and our relationships with each other as His people. Uh, the Son of God loved us in coming to earth, laying His life down on the cross for us that we might know and experience His love forever. And when we accept God's love for us in Christ, and we seek to make that relationship with Him the foundation of every area of our lives, our heart attitudes are transformed. If God is the thing of ultimate worth, and I'm rich beyond all measure for eternity in Christ, how does this change the way I view money and possessions? Uh, here's another question. If in Christ I'm a loved child of God, adopted into His family to enjoy a relationship with Him, and gifted by Him to bring Him glory, I'm free from feeling as if my worth is defined by my performance. Uh, how does this change the way I participate in my sport, in my music, in my art, in school, in my career? I'm no longer defined by my performance. I no longer have to feel failure. I'm already uh, victorious in Christ. I have His love justified. I don't have to earn my place in this world. If my hope and my joy is located in Christ, and I know that my life and my future is in His hands, how does this impact my attitudes and words and actions in the midst of my present circumstances? Uh, the gospel absolutely liberates us from living lives focused on self. It frees us to love God and love others because God loved us first. Uh, what a beautiful thing. And so, uh, to conclude tonight, I want to ask you, what's an area of your life that you've been struggling to trust to God in this way? Um, Maybe you find yourself in a place where you feel like you've been struggling with a sin or believing a lie uh, about yourself. Or maybe even you're at a place where you've made a really good thing, maybe a gift that God has given you, an ultimate thing in your life. Um, made it something that it was never meant to be. As the band comes up and you guys can come up now, I want to just ask you, would you take a minute um, and ask God to meet you now? Um, and to give you the faith to trust that to Him, that you might love Him most, and that you might be able to recognize His Lordship over all things. Uh, life, sure, it is best to live, and it makes the most sense with Him at the center. Um, God's grace changes everything. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that um, these ancient words written 3,000 years ago by uh, a man um, just as ourselves, a broken man, um, we thank you for the way that you revealed yourself to him and helped him to recognize that you are the thing of greatest worth, that our contentment and our meaning um, is found in you alone, and that our lives make most sense when we see you at the center of all things. God, I pray that you would meet us here, that you would uh, do your work inside of us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might humble ourselves and lay down everything before you, to recognize that you are a God who is good, that you are a God who is powerful, and you are the God who loved us first, um, before we even knew who you were. 
Um, you had us in mind and you loved us. And I pray that you would transform our hearts by knowing that love, that we might be able to love others, to serve them all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.